Number one, I say to all patients, what are the 10 most empowering two-letter words? CPR. It's what happens after someone dies as a last-ditch, high-intensity effort. Unlike the movies, it usually fails. What if we used that drive, while we're still alive, to heal ourselves? Welcome to CPR for Life, where we help you understand how to reclaim your health by changing your everyday life. I'm Dr. Sagar Doshi, board certified in both lifestyle and emergency medicine, and certified health coach. Our health is like a vehicle. I've seen too many people, including my own family, crash their health because they don't realize they are the ones driving. This podcast aims to help each of us take the wheel and learn where to go. But even though these conversations are evidence-based, they are just for your education. So please talk with your physician before making changes. In the last segment, we left off talking with top exercise scientist and cardiac rehabilitation expert, Dr. Barry Franklin, about overdosing on exercise. So you're, asking, you're saying to me, Barry, is it possible to get too much of a good thing? Yes. How do I know if I'm getting too much of a good thing? Well, in general, if you're sore from one workout to another, if you're tired, if you find yourself tachycardic, you're probably getting too much. People who do what we call high-volume, high-intensity exercise, in our experience and in the literature, have two reported maladaptations, things you don't want. Number hmm. one, higher levels of coronary calcium. Hmm. So marathon runners have higher levels of coronary calcium, which, as you well know, is a forerunner for cardiovascular disease. Now, that's the bad news. The good news is in those same marathon runners, when we look at their blockages, the coronary artery blockages, they have more stable plaques. They're less likely to rupture. More stable because there's more calcium and less lipid, whereas the inactive guy has a thin fibrous cap and a large lipid core. Those are vulnerable plaques, and they're more likely to rupture. So that calcium may not be all that bad. The other mm -hmm. thing we note is that higher level, higher incidence of a heart rhythm irregularity called atrial fibrillation. Atrial fibrillation can predispose somebody to transient ischemic attack, little strokes, or major strokes, so to speak. Uh, lots of studies now suggest veteran endurance athletes are two to 10 times more likely to develop atrial fibrillation in older age. Two to 10 times more likely to develop. You say, give me the thresholds. One study came out and said over 2,000 hours of vigorous to high-intensity exercise. And another study said over 20 years, they're more likely to develop incident atrial fibrillation, which is an irregular heart rhythm regularity, which predisposes people to stroke or transient ischemic attack. The good news is if you can get those guys to start walking and markedly reduce their exercise dosage and intensity, oftentimes that atrial fibrillation with more modest routines can revert to what we call a regular heart rhythm or normal sinus rhythm. 
So those yeah. are two adverse effects, potentially adverse effects that extreme exercise regimens can confer. You mentioned soreness and tachycardia. Did you mean after the exercise bout having still being sore before, or rather when you get to your next workout and yeah. still being yeah. having a fat rate by the time you get? To... All right. So not during. Not, not during. No, that, that's afterward. Can persist for days. Then they're probably doing too much. Okay. Look, look at it. Look at it this way. If you say to me, from a standpoint of survival, here's something that people will find astounding. If you're a runner, beyond how many minutes per day do the mortality benefits level off? The answer is go to Wen and colleagues. Lance at 2011. I've cited this study a thousand times. Wen and colleagues, Lance at 2011, and basically what they found, looking at all the data is runners who run more than 40 to 45 minutes per day, the survival benefits plateau, plateau, and about 45%. So that, that's pretty damn good. But if you say, yeah. I run two hours or three hours a day, you're not any healthier. And there may be some signs that there's what's called the reverse J-shaped curve, where you're, in general, the more you do, the lower the risk. But if you get to the extremes, the risk starts going up again. Yeah, if you get to that cumulative 2,000 hours or cumulative yeah. 20 yeah. years. You're, then you're you more likely to develop atrial fibrillation. So it's possible to get too much of a good thing. Yeah. Okay. What about in terms of strength training? Is there a too much of a good thing there? To my knowledge, no. I mean, you can get huge muscle, muscle mass. And in fact, the studies years ago showed that elite weightlifters had lower aerobic capacities than normal healthy men, to tell you the truth. You know, they'd be wow. bulk bulked up and so on and so forth. So I suppose it's possible with, with, with strength training. I personally think strength training is a great complement to an aerobic training program. Shouldn't replace it, but should complement it. It lowers heart rate and blood pressure when you're lifting any given load. So the stronger you are, the lower the heart rate and blood pressure, carrying a suitcase or whatever, it improves muscle strength and muscle endurance to a greater extent than does aerobic training. It maintains or enhances basal metabolic rate. Payson says to me, geez, I want to I wanna lose weight. My answer is I want you to complement that aerobic training with some resistance training because that really doesn't do very much for the basal metabolic rate. It'll, the resistance training will maintain or enhance muscle mass, which will preserve the ba or enhance the basal metabolic rate and burn more calories throughout the day. So those are all good reasons to use resistance training to complement aerobics. Yeah, fantastic. And I'm going to ask you about all those different kinds of exercises in a little bit. But before we do, is it possible, in line with that one patient that said if he could out-exercise his heart disease, can people out-exercise their mouth? Is it better to be skinny and sedentary or um, kind of obese? If I would answer that question, and it's a good question. It's a question I oftentimes get. I would say both fitness and overweight and obesity uh, have prognostic significance, are related to health. The higher the fitness, the better the health. The more weight, the worse the health, the more likelihood for diabetes and so on and so forth. There are studies, and Steve Blair, who's now retired, who I know was the, was the champion there at the Cooper Clinic, who showed that overweight, obese, fit men have better prognosis than thin unfit men and thin so fitness unfit is key. Men. Yeah. yeah on the other All hand right. there ain't there ain't too many highly fit 
obese guys running around. So you got to take that with a grain of salt. I think both are mm. important. You say, what's ideal, normal weight, and good fitness. Okay. And now, as far as cigarettes go, can a person be exercising enough to balance out how much they're smoking? Great question. If you go to a JAMA study, Journal of American Medical Association, because I oftentimes cite this, of men in the Cooper Clinic, what they suggested is that fitness, being fit was more important from a prognostic standpoint than being a smoker or non-smoker. So that, that was one, one study. Wait, wait. Uh, I lean toward not smoking. And the reason I lean toward not smoking, and I've studied this, is two landmark studies that have looked at thousands of smokers versus non-smokers have shown unequivocally that if you're a lifetime smoker, you lose 10 to 12 years. You lose 10 to 12 years. I oftentimes see patients who say to me, I'm not going to listen to you. I had an Uncle Jesse who lived to be 84 and he was a packaging mm -hmm. smoker. And my answer is, you're talking about one person. I studied thousands of when you study thousands of people like I do, the average loss is 10 to 12 years. So don't look at one and make your lifestyle decisions based on, on one person. We, so they lose 10 to 12 years. That's more profound than any kind of exercise regimen. I mentioned to you earlier, seven to eight years additional. Well, cigarette smoking, you're going to lose 10 to 12 years. So I'd say cigarette smoking is stopping cigarette smoking more important than the exercise per se. And some people don't realize secondhand smoke with all other confounding factors being, if you're a woman who's married to a smoker and breathe that smoke, his smoke all the time is 30% higher risk for an acute coronary event, even after eliminating diet and many other things. So simply breathing somebody else's smoke. So I've been involved in uh, policies and procedures where employees say I have a right to smoke and somebody else says I got a right to breathe clean air, I always side on the people who say I got a right to breathe clean air because there's unequivocal, unequivocal evidence that breathing somebody else's cigarette smoke day in and day out increases your risk, not to mention lung cancer, increases your risk of heart disease by 30%. That's my answer. Wow. Okay. But before I interrupted you, what were you saying about the no real difference in prognostication between the smokers and the non-smokers? Did um, I hear that right? Well, well, basically what they showed is the difference between, they looked at normal weight, overweight, and obese men. This was a Cooper mm -hmm. clinic. And then they looked at fit, unfit, smoker versus non-smoker. In that study, they found there appeared to be a greater difference between fit and unfit than being smoker versus non-smoker. So, that would suggest fitness is more important. I, I'm i not disputing that, but if you said to me, based on everything I know, cigarette mm -hmm. smoking reduces lifespan by 10 to 12 years. There's no exercise regimen that's going to add kind of lifespan. So I'd say smoking, stopping smoking should be a greater priority than exercising. That's okay, the I hear you. Yeah. And, if, you know, doing both is obviously ideal. Stop yes. smoking and exercising. Correct. Correct. Now, if I'm taking all my medicines, I think we hit this already. Um, if I'm taking all my medicines, I still need to exercise. But then I start seeing headlines about exercise coming to us as a pill. Is there any 
actual data that that's happening. Apparently in mice, they start feeding them this medicine and they're building muscle without any exercise or lifting mice weights of any kind. I am not aware of it. And even if there's a medication that could increase heart rate, it's not the heart rate that causes the conditioning effects and the benefits. It's the increase in metabolism. Think of it this way. If nervous, it, 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 I could go in a steam room or sauna room and get to my exercise heart rate. My meds stay at one, but my heart rate's 120 or 130 in the steam room. Am I getting any benefits? No. So it seems to me impossible to, unless you find a pill that can get your metabolism up to four, five, six mets, I don't believe we're going to find a pill that will replace exercise. Okay. So moving the body, making it demand more oxygen. stimulate, more oxygen, yeah. more nutrients, yeah. that's effective. It, it's not Getting the rise in, in Yeah. It's not the rise in heart rate. Okay. So scary movies, not going to cut it. No. Scary movies uh, or sometimes when I give a talk before a thousand people, if I take my pulse, it's 120 or something right, right before I go on. That's not a conditioning effect. That's okay. a disproportionate myocardial to body oxygen demand because I'm still at one met as I'm sit standing at that podium. Gotcha. All right. Well, speaking of standing, I'd like to go through with you different kinds of exercise and if there's real differences in their effect and how they work in the body. So if you don't mind, I'll just, I'll name some different kinds of exercise and you tell me its effect and if they differ from the other ones. But first off, cardio, what we know as cardio, running, jumping jacks, yeah. all that stuff. Or, or even brisk walking. Um, yeah. I'd say, I'd put that at the top of the pyramid as the most important. I'd put that as okay. the most important. They improve, that improves fitness. And for each one med increase in fitness, there's a 15 to 20% reduction in mortality, improves VO2 max. It, it improves the vascular system. We could go on to nitric oxide and all kinds of things. But overall, it, better ability of vessels to dilate and constrict. So that'd be very high in my priority list. Okay. What about high-intensity interval training, a.k.a. Tabatas and all the like? I'm personally not an enthusiast of high-intensity interval training, maybe for military recruits, guys in their 18 and 20 and 22 years of age, but not for the average population. Two things. High-intensity interval training does, and I admit this, you can get a workout done more quickly. It accelerates the work. You can get a workout done very, very quickly. Secondly, it improves the aerobic capacity modestly over mild continuous training by about half a met, half a met. So a moderate continuous uh, training improves, say, by one and a half mets, a high-intensity interval training by about two mets. On the other hand, for people at risk for heart disease or with known heart disease, a preliminary study showed the risk of high-intensity training is sixfold higher for eliciting a cardiac event than is moderate intensity training. So especially if you say to me, what about high intensity training at the local YMCA or the health and fitness? Absolutely not. You want to do it in a cardiac rehab, you're being monitored. And if you're showing ischemic ST depression or serious heart rhythm regularities, they can bring you down. That's a different situation. But go into the the gym where there's nobody there or nobody medically oriented and pushing yourself to 90, 95% of capacity while 
uh, Cleveland Clinic study says 85% of all Americans over the age of 50 already have atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease. It's a prescription for disaster. So once again, maybe for military recruits and uh, people like that, but, but not middle-aged and older adults, who pro- many of whom probably have coronary disease. I'm actually, this is not my case, but I was actually asked to consult on a case without getting into much depth. Somebody went into a gym. They did high-intensity training. Day one, the guy was out of shape, had a BMI over 35, had a cardiac arrest and died that day. Well, oh my. unfit, overweight, deconditioned. You got no business having somebody run day one on a treadmill at six, seven miles per hour, period. That's just not the standard of practice. If you want vigorous exercise, and I agree, you get more benefits, take two, three months and gradually, very slowly pick up your pace. If you get chest pain or discomfort or the work feels more than somewhat hard, I'd back it off. And if you get chest pain or discomfort, I'd stop the exercise and see your mm-hmm. position, period. And the, before resuming whatsoever. Yeah, yeah. Okay. What about, you mentioned it somewhat earlier, but what about weight training, including the super slow movements? Yeah. I, 30 years ago, I said weight training should be used as a complement to aerobic training. Knock on wood, we've had no cardiac arrests or anything during weight training with people with coronary disease. The important factor physicians need to know, people need to know, is that if you increase strength, and you go to lift any given load, that load now represents a lower percentage of your maximum. If you've increased your strength, mm-hmm. then it results in a lower heart rate, lower breath, blood pressure, reduced demands on the heart, fewer heart rhythm regularities, and ischemic ST segment depression. So those are all good things. It also increases strength, it increases endurance, it increases lean body mass better than does aerobic training. So for all those reasons, I think it's a great way to complement an aerobic training program. So I'd say cardio number one, weight training number two. Okay. Peanut butter and jelly relationship there. Mm-hmm. And then what about things like balance work? Yeah. Balance is very, very important. I agree. Balance and stretching to me kind of go hand in hand and they should be a complement. You can do balance and stretching, say at the end or cool down of your, of your program. I would include those, but as the priority, cardio, weight training, and then balance and, and stretching. Yoga, as you mentioned, is a, is a nice complement. Tai Chi is a nice complement. We don't have that many randomized controlled trials suggesting it's, it's better than, than these other things. So I think it's a nice complement. We got a lot of patients who do yoga and Tai Chi, and they really enjoy it. And I wouldn't discount that. All right. What do you guys actually do in cardiac rehab? What is a person that's just had a significant heart attack and then goes into cardiac rehab? What kind of exercising are they doing? Are you doing the, the chest strap monitor with Tabatis, like you kind of alluded to earlier? We, we monitor heart rate, heart rhythm via ECG telemetry, telemetry system. It's like in a coronary care unit. Units. So they come in, we can measure their resting heart rate and blood pressure. Our general guideline is to get them to what we call a rating of perceived exertion from 11 to 13, which corresponds to fairly light to somewhat hard. So we're looking, by the way, we're looking for an honest, fairly light to somewhat hard. My experience is that women are far more honest than men who are macho and 
they could be falling off the damn treadmill and they give us a nine or 10 on that and it's really an 18 or 19. So you have to use your clinical intuition there. But as a general guideline, 11 to 13, which is fairly light to somewhat hard. We also caution them to let us know of any adverse signs or symptoms. The EKG monitor doesn't always tell you somebody's getting chest pain or something along those lines. We like the blood pressure to go up. Heart's a pump. If the pump's working adequately, the pressure should go up. So we're, we're looking for those kinds of things. And then we'll generally start somebody if they haven't had a stress test. At resting heart rate plus 10 up to 30 beats or likely 10 to 20 beats from rest. So if you're a new patient, you're resting heart, you're on a beta blocker, your resting heart rate is 70, we're going to try to get you up to 80, maybe 90 early on. Mm -hmm. And look at your heart rate, look at your rhythm, look at your rating of perceived exertion. And our goal in our Beaumont program is to get you training before you leave us, get you training above three, 3.3, 3.4 METs. That's our goal, regardless of where you some people are there the first day, guys in really good shape who've had a mild heart attack. Others start walking at a mile an hour, which is 1.8 mets. And our goal over the six, eight weeks of training, try to get them training above three mets. Because if they're training above three mets, once again, I know they've got greater than a five met exercise capacity, which is, is associated with a big reduction in mortality. That's, yeah, that's and at any point which is amazing. All right. So now that we know the amazing qualities of different forms of exercise, and we know that cardio is the top of the pyramid, number one priority with weight training just underneath it. What do you personally do as a world expert in exercise? What do you do? And how did you decide that that would be your routine? Yeah, I, I was a gymnast in college and I could do an iron cross. I must admit to you about 30 years ago, I tried to do an iron cross at 40 years of age. I saw little dots. Okay. <laughs> That was the last time I tried an air cross at 40 or 45. Today, my wife and I have a three, four mile course that we, we walk two, three times a week in bad weather. And my wife was nice enough over the holidays to buy a treadmill, which she and I use. It's a pre-core treadmill. Cost about a thousand dollars at the time. We've had it for 15, 18 years. Hasn't broken down yet. We can adjust speed and grade. What do I do? You'll laugh, but I actually do a modification of the Bruce treadmill protocol as part of my workout. And instead of three-minute stages, I do five to seven-minute stages. And instead of starting at 1.7 and 10% grade, which is the Bruce protocol stage one, I start at 1.7 and five for five, six, seven minutes then go up to 1.7 and 10, which is stage one of the Bruce Treadmill Protocol, which corresponds to about five METs. Then do that for five minutes, six minutes, seven minutes, then go to stage two, 2.5 miles an hour, 12% grade. That's about seven METs. And then finish at 3.4 miles an hour, 14% grade, which is about 10 METs. And that's the last stage I do. Then I go to cool down. That stage is usually three, four minutes. So I can get a pretty good workout in. And usually it's about 25, 30 minutes, not an hour, something like that. Also gives me the wherewithal, if I'm not getting any symptoms up to stage three of the Bruce, conventional Bruce treadmill protocol, and I'm working at 10 minutes, I'm pretty sure if I have a regular maximal stress test, I'm going to do at least 11 or 12 minutes. For a guy 74, that's pretty good. That's, that's good to excellent fitness. 
Yeah. It's and, also and then like sometimes I'll do some light resistance training or modified push-ups or calisthenics or something that involve body weight or, or whatever. I'm not as good about that as the other two. Do you track your heart rate for any of this or just trust that it's getting where it needs to be? The nice thing about this treadmill is it's got hand hand grips, which gives me, and I verified it. So most of the time, my resting heart rate is 60, 65. At, at the height, I go up to 120, 125, and that's fine. Okay. There's also that saying or rule of thumb that how fast your heart rate comes back to normal is an indicator of how healthy you are. Is that is there truth to that? I, I agree with that. Um, one of the questions we were talking about is heart rate. The higher the heart rate, the healthier you are. I wouldn't say the higher the heart rate, the healthier you are. I'd say the higher the heart rate in general, the younger you are. So I'd expect a 20-year-old to reach a max heart rate of one of 200, and I'd expect mm -hmm. a 40-year-old to reach a max heart rate of about 180 plus or minus some. To your point on heart rate recovery, yes, faster the heart rate goes from your maximal down to a much lower level the more fit you are. And a classic study at the Cleveland Clinic, because I oftentimes cite it, showed that they looked at the heart rate at max and one minute post when the person was walking comfortably on the treadmill. They found it should drop by more than 12 beats. So if you are 180, it should be less than 168 or something like that. If you do that, you have a much better prognosis, long-term prognosis. So good heart rate recovery, better fitness, and better prognosis. If, on the other hand, your max heart rate's 180, and a one-minute post is 175 or 174, that's an abnormal heart rate recovery associated with a poor prognosis or long-term health. All right. Well, good thing that that's a simple thing to measure, mm -hmm. a clock and some fingers. Yep. Just to shift gears for a minute, one of your books was 109 Things to Do About Heart Disease. One of the chapters you get to, even before exercise, the chapter is on stress. So what are the effects and the relationships between stress, heart disease, and exercise? There are psychosocial modulators that can increase the likelihood of developing heart disease or the likelihood of triggering an acute cardiac event. Stress anxiety, and one thing we should mention is depression. Stress, anxiety, or depression in generally is, is associated with a higher risk of future heart disease. You say to me, Barry, why? What's the relationship? I guess it's that people who are stress, anxious, or depressed oftentimes have unhealthy lifestyle habits. That was shown in a classic article, Annals of Internal Medicine, many, many years ago. In other words, people who are depressed, stressed, or anxious are less likely to take their prescribed medications, less likely to follow your advice as their doctor, less likely to go to cardiac rehab, more likely to smoke, more likely to eat unhealthy diets. So I think that's for all three of those, stress, anxiety, and depression, the link it's related to more unhealthy lifestyles. So if we're going to manage the stress, is there a difference in how we manage it? Is it going to be different if we take up yoga or running or Xanax as far as managing stress and how it affects our health? I think it, it is highly individual. I'd be 
making a mistake by saying one is superior to the other. We get individual. I have some people who do very well with meditation. I have some don't necessarily have to run, just regular exercise. It, it reduces stress and so on and so forth. I'd say the last choice would, would be pharmacologic because I have many patients already on 10 medications and to throw an 11th or 12th for anxiety and so on and so forth. Exercise can help combat stress, can improve quality of life and so on and so forth. So I would certainly try that first before I'd go to any anti-anxiety medications. Okay. Well then cap that off with a question where I think I know what you're going to say, but what should I prioritize first? Managing the stress and those psychosocial factors, exercise or nutrition? Question I was asked years ago, and my answer would always be probably exercise first. I was wrong. That's why I read the literature. There are some smarter people than me that have looked at the intuition says do one at a time and build on that. But a very, very good study in Animals of Internal Medicine says tackling all three simultaneously has the biggest impact and is the biggest reinforcer for those changes in behavior, nutrition, exercise, and stress. So I'll say to patients, try all three. And once again, you could say, I'm going to replace my chips at lunch with, with an apple or, or a banana. That's how I'm going to start this thing. That's doable. Mm -hmm. Also, I think something very, very important. We as clinicians, I don't adopt guidelines. The guidelines say 45 to 60 minutes of exercise, five days a week and whatever. And if you're my patient, you say, doc, what do I need? And I'll say, what are you doing now? You say nothing. That's why I'm asking you. My answer is give me 10 minutes, three times a week over the next month. or Usually they say that's not nearly enough. I read USA Today said 60 minutes. I said, give me 10 minutes, three times a week over the next month or two. Will you promise me you do that? Most of the time they will. Then I see those people three to six months later. And I said, did you follow it? No, I didn't listen to you. I did 12 minutes the first day, and I did 14 minutes the second week, and now I'm up to 40 minutes three times a week. A body at rest tends to remain at rest. Get them moving. Don't discourage the hell out of them by saying you need 60 minutes five days a week. Tell them 10 minutes. Get them started so at least they start moving. You overcome momentum, and, and to me, that's one of the key ways of counseling patients. Not mm -hmm. following the guidelines, but get them to do something that they're going to be successful. Diet doesn't have to change radically. You can say, instead of chips, put, do an apple or a pear or something like that. Get that going and then build onto that. The literature clearly says we want to try to overcome inertia by downscale goals to get people moving in the right direction. We also, and I'm sure you're familiar with these, use readiness to change and motivational interviewing. Motivational interviewing is basically getting the patient, asking questions. So the patient tells you what, what you want to tell them, but they're, they're telling you. I had a guy not too long ago who was 300 pounds. You'll, love, you'll laugh at this story. So I put three tabs in his chart, 290, 270, and 250. And I said, do you think you're at the appropriate weight? He says, no, I need to lose weight. And I said, what do you think you could get to, say, a year from today? He'll say 270, 275. 
So I'll pick up the tab in the chart that says 270 and 270. He goes, so you and I are in the, on the same page. He goes, yes, that, that's great. So I agree. I make sure I agree with him as long as it's moving in the down direction. It's a little bit devious. But Fantastic. As long as it works. <laughs> that, yeah, that reinforces his thing of, and I say, why can you get to 270? Because he'll say a year ago, I was at 274, 275. So I think I can get to that. So that that's what you need to do. Yeah. Yeah. You're talking about the tiny victories and tiny habits yeah. and just getting success under your belt exactly. will motivate a person. Get them moving to overcome inertia. Get them to take action so they begin to develop momentum. I do a ton of writing. And then people say, what's your success? I sit down, I write a paragraph or I write a page, even if it's lousy. It's easier to go back the next day and the next day and so on and so forth. Take action. In fact, if you said to me, Barry, what's the single most important characteristic of highly successful people? They take action. Number one. Number one. Yeah. Well, if you don't start, it's hard to get anywhere. Which I would like to talk to you more about that. You wrote an entire book about it called DPS for Success. Why did you write it? And what have you discovered that might be able to help people not only get to a better health, but maintain it once they're there? Yeah. I, uh, I went straight through school and got a PhD at, at uh, 28 years of age from Penn State University. And I got in the real world and I knew about heart rates and blood pressures and risk factors and so on and so forth. But I didn't know that if you're talking with somebody, you need to look at them and, and, and that you want to get things done, you need to do a to-do list. And little things that they didn't teach you in school, I call these soft skills. So prepare. I spent at least an hour and a half preparing for our discussion today. You say, how did this guy do it? <laughs> he, he prepared. It's, this is not all spontaneous. Setting goals, very, very important for patients, health goals. Setting goals and setting them in writing. I say in the book, if it's not on paper, it's vapor, okay? Or if you can think it, ink it, write it down. It's as simple as that. Classic study, by the way, of weight loss. Those programs that have patients chronicle, write down exactly what they ate over a three-month period versus a conventional diet lost more than twice as much weight over the three months simply by noting what they, mm-hmm. were, what they were eating. The law of attraction, believe, act, achieve. Think about your goals constantly, whether it's a lower weight, more fitness, write your goals down and achieve them. Visualization, see yourself succeeding, see yourself with a lower weight, see yourself with a cholesterol under 200. Other soft skills, writing, speaking, so you're able to communicate well in collaboration. If you say, how do you apply all these things to health? I'll give you a a few things that I'd recommend. Number one, I say to all patients, what are the 10 most empowering two-letter words? 10 most empowering two-letter words. If it is to be, it is up to me. Not Dr. Doshi. He can write a script for you. He can get a test for you. But what do you do in 16 waking hours a day, seven days a week? Mm -hmm. Persistence pays. Setbacks line the road to success. You're going to go to a wedding and you're going to eat something that you shouldn't. Then get back on track. It's as simple as that. Establish a plan, written goals. Once again, number one goal is 
action. People take action. Um, collaboration. Work with others who have similar goals. Surround yourself with experts. Surround yourself with patients you'd like to emulate. Talk to them. How do they, how do, they do it? And finally, relative to exercise, make it fun, make it enjoyable, exercise with others. Give you an example. We play volleyball at Beaumont Hospital Cardiac Rehab Program, and we allow one bounce of the ball per side. So we can take people who are not so coordinated, not so fit, and let them bounce and have a, a great long-term game back and forth, allowing the ball to, to bounce one time. So these are things that I think we as clinicians need to do to make, patient, to make it more fun, to make it enjoyable. I know we have people sometimes that come for all the treadmill work and everything else, knowing that they're going to play one bounce volleyball at, at the end and so on and so forth. So I think you want to make it fun, enjoyable, and try to modify conventional rules to make people successful. Yeah. Not exactly stick to the guidelines right off the bat. Yeah. Not necessarily even follow all the rules to volleyball right off the bat. Yes. Forever. So what do you do with people that may have physical limitations? People that they move poorly. They have Parkinson's or their joints hurt very badly. Yeah. Or they've had a stroke, et cetera. I remember when I started here at Beaumont 37 years ago and the administrator said, you want 20 treadmills or you want 20 cycle ergometers? I'm going to get you. Not both, but what? And I, my answer was neither. He goes, what do you mean? I said, a lot of people can't use a treadmill. They don't have the balance and so on and so forth. Others don't like the cycle ergometer because it, it's sore on their butt and so on and so forth. We have a variety of exercise devices that can accommodate people with a variety of health conditions. We also have the new step, which exercises the arms and legs. It's an ergometer where you can move your feet and arms and legs at the same time, and it's seated for people who have balance problems along those lines. So we try to accommodate the exercise according to the patient, as opposed to saying, everybody's got to do this. It helps okay. me as a clinician, if I see several different devices, the one that gives you the most accurate estimates of METs is treadmill. Whether you do it, I do it, older people, younger people, if we're walking on the treadmill at three miles an hour, just having the hands resting on the bar, I know you're at about 3.4 minutes. It doesn't vary from one person to another. So somewhere out there is the activity that a person can do. Yeah. If well, breathing, we, there is something. Our aware. job is to find it. Yeah. In the world of exercise physiology, a lot of people don't even know that that exists, that there are experts out there in exercise that are willing to help them. Yes, correct. Yeah. What a, do you have any tips for people that, for mental health reasons or self-imposed reasons are not able to get themselves to even take that first step. Either they're embarrassed that people will see them or they have that depression or no social support. First of all, our program, we have all shapes and sizes and colors and ethnic. It's not like walking into a powerhouse gym or lifetime fitness where you see executives and people in the speedo type suits and, and so on and so forth. So, they don't have to worry so much about that. And once again, we modify the exercise to make it fun and enjoyable. And we consider even if they do five, 10 minutes as a start, as a success, and try to reward whatever they do with positive reinforcement. Okay. So people, I mean, even people at home, if your tip would be just do something. Yeah. If you're doing nothing, cool. do something. If you're doing a little bit, try to do a little bit more going from moderate to vigorous exercise. 
provided you feel it's fairly light to somewhat hard and you have no symptoms. So that's that's the goal or evolution. And the latest guidelines say you ought to give it two months, just basically a walking type program before you start thinking about graded walking or, uh, or, or running or anything like that. So started very slowly, very gradually. And people said, guys who say, that, this is crazy. I used to run cross-country college. I said, you're now 68. Over that 40 years, you developed atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease, and I'll want you running day one or day. It's as simple as that. Okay. We have just a few minutes left before you get to go on with your day. Can I ask you some more rapid, sure. curious questions that people have asked me to ask you? What is better? Is it better to exercise in the heat or is it better to exercise in the cold? And my answer would be neither. Uh, maybe uh, Heat disproportionately raises the heart rate response. Cold disproportionately reduces blood vessel diameter, increasing resistance, increasing blood pressure. If you can find an environment that's, that's neutral, indoor or whatever, as opposed to extreme heat or extreme cold, you're better off. Okay. Is there a certain time of day that is better to exercise? I'd say the most convenient time for you, the patient. Ideally, best is if we can get people to prioritize it. First things first, as Stephen Covey would say. Uh, so at eight o'clock in the morning, you get your exercise done and, and, and you've moved on. I found just in terms of my own work and professional things, I get up at 4.30 every morning and for the first hour, I do what's most important. So things along those lines. Okay. Now I know somebody that swears it's best to um, exercise on an empty stomach. Any truth to that? I don't know of any studies that, that would support okay. that. In general, I'd rather have someone eat very little, a piece of toast or something, or a glass of juice or coffee, especially if they're diabetic. I, the, the, so I don't worry about exercise-induced hypoglycemia. But overall, I'd say an empty stomach as opposed to a big, heavy meal where circulation is competing for feeding the muscles versus digestion makes sense to me okay and then in your work or in your life have you encountered any dangerous myths out there about exercise that you just want to set straight i don't know if i'd say dangerous myths but i've encountered myths some could potentially be dangerous some give patients the wrong thoughts or perspective one of the myths and this is a myth, is that marathon running promotes immunity to coronary artery disease. That if you can run a marathon, you're immune to coronary disease. We have unequivocal data. Marathon runners who were able to run marathons, very significant coronary artery disease. Overall, distance running reduces the risk, but doesn't promote immunity. There are lifestyle, there's genetics, there's a whole bunch of other factors. Second myth, it's possible to spot reduce. Some patients over the years have said, if I do a thousand sit-ups, will I reduce the, the, the fat around my waist? Smarter people than you and I have actually studied that. And they found that when you do exercise, fat is reduced from all the body fat stores, not just around the waist per se. Number three, some people have said taking an aspirin or beta blocker before highly competitive Vigorous exercise reduces the risk of acute coronary events or heart attacks. There are no randomized controlled trials that have looked at that, and several studies that have looked at it for runners who took aspirin beta blockers had about the same incidence of heart problems as those who didn't take it. So although intuitively 
You and I know that aspirin and beta blockers are effective in secondary prevention. Taking it prophylactically right before a run doesn't necessarily guarantee any additional benefits. Fourthly, high-intensity training is a reasonable alternative to moderate-intensity training, not for people, in my opinion, who are middle to high-risk, middle-aged, especially in non-medical settings. The safety, six times greater risk in with high-intensity training than moderate-intensity training, and the additional improvement is really modest. It's about a half a met higher. So if moderate continuous gives you 1.5 mets, high-intensity training might give you two mets if you live through it. So, so the, and, and there's our data to suggest it's not as popular or as pleasurable as moderate-intensity continuous training. And lastly, some people have said to me, elite athletes have what's it why should they exercise elite athletes have about the same death rates as the general population that's not true there are actually several four major studies that show elite athletes who continue walking maybe that distance running but walking activity actually live three to six years longer than than the people in the general population so those are the four or five myths that i would would like to touch on yeah those are I didn't even know that was out there for the most part. Thank you for setting that straight. Of course. This has been an amazing, just fabulous conversation. It is no wonder that you have been able to write so many books and articles. I feel like we just scratched the surface of your knowledge right now. So thank you so much for coming. GPS for success. Check it out. Yeah. There's a lot of good stuff in here, and especially. I, and I'd welcome the opportunity to come back on a different time just to talk about that book, which I think would be of interest to your, to your listeners. Yeah. Especially when it comes to changing behavior. Yep. That's fundamental. Yes. It's all that. So we'll set that up. Okay. Thank you again very much. My pleasure. That was a fantastic conversation. So let's recap some of the main points. We all only have so much time. So we should be prioritizing cardiovascular aerobic exercise, followed by strength training closely, and then topping it off with activities that help balance and stretching, like yoga. Also, exercise is medicine. Most people take too little, but it's possible to take too much. Additionally, stress and anxiety can be helped significantly by getting enough exercise. The flip side of that is if you can manage that stress better, you're more likely to get yourself moving. Check out CPRHealthClinic.com for more help on getting better with stress. I'll add that consistency is key in behavior change, even if it's not the end behavior. What that means is that if you could only do one minute of walking per day, but you can do it daily, then you should do that. It's a start and things can grow from there. Remember, the way you live can save your life.